Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Francine Foss, Anish Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Foss is a professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is associate professor of surgical oncology and director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. And Dr. Gore is director of hematological malignancies at Smilo. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, you'll hear about cancer epidemiology and exercise interventions for women with cancer with Dr. Melinda Irwin. Dr. Irwin is Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Chronic Diseases at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Stephen Gore. So before we get into the meat of the matter, which I'm really fascinated to hear about, I don't think probably many of our listening audience have a clue what epidemiology is. So maybe we can just start with with that. Sure. Yeah. So epidemiology, a shortened term is epidemics or diseases. And so... Like Ebola? Sort of. That would be infectious diseases. I study chronic diseases, in particular cancer epidemiology. And so epidemiology is looking at the determinants of a disease or the risk factors of disease or what causes disease. So in this case, what causes cancer. And distribution is how it spreads over um, populations or over time. And so looking at how cancer... Instance um, may have increased over time, um, or how it might vary in this country versus another country. Hmm. So it doesn't have to be an infectious or contagious kind of thing, is that right, to be included in epidemiology? No, not at all. So it can be chronic diseases or diseases like heart disease or cancer or diabetes, and looking at what are the causes of these. And really, epidemiology is a public health um, focus, looking at populations of people rather than more basic science or molecular science on the cellular low level or even um, we do do some animal epidemiology research, but mostly it's in humans and in populations where we look at. So how do you study stuff like that? So some epidemiology is large prospective cohort studies, observational studies where you enroll hundreds and thousands of men and women um, at a certain age period, maybe in their um, 20s or 30s, and you follow them for 40 or so years until so many develop a certain cancer or another chronic disease. And every two years, they might complete questionnaires or have blood tests done or other exams or x-rays and whatnot. And you can then, in measuring these um, variables before a diagnosis, you can then look back when someone develops, say, breast cancer and see what factors were associated with lowering the risk of developing the cancer versus other factors that might increase it. So that's one way of doing epidemiology. If you started that study when you were 30 or 70 before it's done, right? (laughs) (laughs) That sounds pretty like you have to really be into delayed gratification as a scientist. Well, yeah. And so so some studies will do, um, for, for example, with my research, I'll do randomized controlled trials. So We'll um, do studies in, say, women with breast cancer, and we'll randomize them to um, completing uh, an intervention versus control or placebo. And you look at various endpoints that you measure at baseline and at the end of the intervention, and you can see how the intervention affected that 
outcome or that endpoint that you measured. So it's usually epidemiology has observational prospective studies or clinical trials. Hmm. Um, and in some of the observational studies, you might study a higher risk group, such as those who've developed cancer or heart disease, and you can um, follow them for just five years until you want to look at an endpoint such as recurrence or something and what causes that. Gotcha. So can you talk to me about some of your um, interventional trials? What kinds of things have you been interested in? Sure. So my um, area of research focuses on lifestyle behaviors. So what um, individuals can do after completing treatment, let's say, or even some of my studies are during treatment, that may lower their risk of recurrence or mortality. So specifically, I look at exercise and weight loss and how it impacts prognosis as well as quality of life. I've done studies in women with breast cancer as well as ovarian cancer as and also some recent studies looking at other cancers such as colon and prostate. So, for example, um, a study that we have just completed is women, um, breast cancer survivors who are taking aromatase inhibitors um, that we know improve their prognosis. But these medications have side effects um, such as joint pain or arthralgia, and these side effects um, are common in about 50% of the women and make them want to stop taking the medication. So their adherence to the medication is not that good. So we look at how exercise or other lifestyle behaviors in conjunction of at the same time of taking the medication may improve not only the side effects of the medication, but also their compliance to taking the medication, which in turn improves um, recurrence risk. Other studies we look at um, that we have currently where we're enrolling women um, with breast cancer, a weight loss trial and how weight loss may improve um, biomarkers for breast cancer prognosis, such as insulin levels or inflammatory markers, such as CRP. So if we show that in, um, weight loss lowers these biomarkers, that um, helps us to better understand how weight loss um, improves prognosis and what the mechanisms are um, of, of how it influences improving their outcomes. Hmm. Maybe you could walk me through that a, a little bit more. So uh, you're going to take women and they're going to lose weight, hopefully. Um, tell me about these biomarkers of that, that CRP. Isn't that an inflammatory marker? It is. So one study that we have now, we've um, it's called the Lean Study, Lifestyle, Exercise, and Nutrition Good name. Study. Yeah. And so um, we completed um, the first phase on 100 women. So these are overweight breast cancer survivors who completed their treatment. Um, so they're roughly about two to three years post-diagnosis, but they could be anywhere from six months post-diagnosis. And at um, baseline, they're all overweight and they're interested in a weight loss program. So they're, um, at baseline, we collect a blood draw. We actually also collect a breast. Um, we do a biopsy of their healthy breast to collect um, some breast tissue. It's mostly fatty tissue. And then they're randomized to either a six-month weight loss program with um, 11 counseling sessions with our registered dietitian, Maura Harrigan. Um, and then um, at the end of the six months, they have another blood draw as well as a biopsy and also other um, a DEXA bone scan to look at body fat, bone mass, uh, and complete some questionnaires. And then the control group is actually a waitlist group. So at the end of the six months, then they're offered the full intervention. So what we're then able to look at is the weight loss um, between the two groups. So those enrolled in the intervention lose about 10% body weight with this intervention over six months. Um, and the control group actually maintains or even might um, slightly lose some body weight just because of being involved in the in the study and learning a little. There 
are allowed to diet if they want to? If they want to, but we know that on your own, um, people have difficulty maintaining kind of a, a behavior change program, and that's where the counseling is important. I know I do. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what we've been able to show is that looking at the blood markers, such as CRP, that we know is related to breast cancer as well as some other cancers, we observed a 30% decrease in serum CRP levels with about 5% body weight loss. So this has implications not only um, for uh, breast cancer, but some other chronic diseases where inflammation is an adverse risk factor. We also found insulin levels to be um, decreased significantly with 5% body weight. And we know insulin is a strong risk factor for breast cancer, so much so now that it's being tested as a target with um, uh, lowering it with metformin, which is a medication originally developed for diabetes, but now being examined um, for breast cancer by lowering insulin levels and therefore improving prognosis. So another way of lowering insulin is perhaps with weight loss and exercise. Hmm. So these studies, um, some have finished and we have um, results published on that and others that we're still recruiting and enrolling um, participants for these trials. Hmm. So um, that's really interesting. So you watch their CRP go down. They're done with their 11 sessions. You send them off on their way. We hope they're going to continue to maintain their weight. Very, very good question. So that has in all of behavioral medicine, not just specific to cancer, but um, in healthy individuals and diabetics, um, heart disease, you name it, the maintenance of any behavior change is a a very difficult factor. So what's really important is that we have um, access to programs in the community or even in the clinics or the hospital so that when they're done with research um, studies, they can go to those. Or even if they're not eligible or they don't want to do a research study, these programs are available. So at Yale here, we have the Survivorship Clinic, which is a great program offered where any um, survivor one day post-diagnosis or 10 plus years can come and they can meet with a dietitian, they can meet with a physical therapist, a social worker, and talk about some of the um, healthy be- the behaviors that they would like to change as well as some other factors related um, to work or family or whatnot. And also another great program in the community that exists is the Live Strong Foundation has partnered with the YMCA across the country to offer free three-month-long exercise programs to any man or woman diagnosed with cancer, also any um, time post-diagnosis. And so these programs exist in the, at certain Ys across the country, uh, and they're free to um, the individual. And it's a really great start that giving um, them those three months with a, a supervised trainer, it's a small group setting, um, giving them the skills and knowledge of how to exercise at the appropriate intensity. And then at the end of the three months, they even continue these sessions. They're kind of called graduate programs. Um, and a lot of them also um, have reduced memberships uh, after the free three-month program. Hmm. So finding, um, creating more opportunities in the community um, will create access and hopefully increase um changes in these behaviors and maintenance of them. But as we know it, even though if you have um, access to these um, services, it's still very difficult to change behavior. So a lot of our research is still examining what's the minimal amount of exercise that needs to be done? What's the minimal amount of weight that needs to be lost to see favorable changes? Um, So there's a whole body of research right now looking at sedentary behavior, how to decrease sedentary time, um, and if that can influence 
these um, various outcomes? Because we know people are becoming a lot more sedentary now compared to years prior because of technology. We are spending a lot more time on computers, on handheld devices. So we're not walking as much at work or even um, outside of work. Our foods are a lot more processed now so that we can cook them quicker and, um, and then sit down and do Facebook or Twitter or something. So on a um, population level, our, our behavior, our physical activity levels have decreased significantly, which has led to some weight gain over time. So looking at how just changing sedentary time um, may improve outcomes is an area of research. In, in fact, in the Yale School of Public Health, a lot of the faculty members are now changing their desks to standing desks and also maybe treadmill desks. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. But before we get that far, um, I'm still fascinated about this weight loss thing. How are you going to make the loop or connect the loop uh, that they lost the weight they got their markers down. They were really successful in maintenance. God bless them. Uh, and how are you going to know whether or not you really impacted their um, likelihood of having cancer recurrence? Great question. And in fact, um, the first question I had on my agenda here when I started at Yale over 12 years ago, and I actually submitted a grant to the National Cancer Institute to look at exercise on recurrence and mortality of breast cancer. Um, and it's just a very expensive trial to get funded. It's millions of dollars because you have to enroll large sample sizes of women with stage two to three breast cancer. Um, they have to be willing to be in the intervention or in the study for five years. And so it's very expensive, um, but not any more expensive than drug trials that are currently sure. in progress. So when um, that was actually um, scored in the fundable range, but there was not the budget available to fund it. So we went back to the drawing board and we we submitted a weight loss trial on recurrence mortality endpoints that was also not funded. But now it's being revisited because it's a very major interest of the National Cancer Institute to look at um, some of these lifestyle factors on the direct endpoints of recurrence and mortality. So there is some movement now to fund it through the cooperative trials um, to look at a large-scale weight loss trial on recurrence and mortality um, that I'll be involved with as well. So hopefully that'll get started next year. And so we'll have that definitive results of how much weight loss is necessary to lower risk of recurrence and mortality um, that will convince clinicians and third-party payers um, to hopefully fund um, more programs related to lifestyle behaviors. Well, that's great. We're going to want to pick up on that after our little break. But, but uh, for now, we need to take a short break for Medical Minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about exercise and weight loss interventions for women, and I suppose for men with cancer as well, with Dr. Melinda Irwin. The American Cancer Society estimates that more than 60,000 Americans will be diagnosed with head and neck cancer in 2014. Although the percentage of oral and head and neck cancer patients in the United States is only about 5% of all diagnosed cancers, there are challenging side effects associated with these types of cancer and their treatment. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven, to test innovative new treatments. And in many cases, less radical surgeries are able to preserve nerves, arteries, and muscles in the neck, enabling patients to move, speak, breathe, and eat normally after surgery. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at Yale 
Weather.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Melinda Irwin, and we've been discussing exercise and weight loss interventions for women with cancer. Um, And uh, Melinda, before the break, uh, you were telling me about some of your really uh, fascinating, um, but a little bit frustrating to get funded plans for really what sounds like to me very important studies of uh, trying to really directly measure the connection between weight loss um, or exercise and or exercise and cancer recurrence. But it sounds like you've had some frustrations in in getting the funding for that. Yeah. So it's interesting because whenever I give talks around the country or the world on this topic, clinicians and survivors will say, well, how does it impact recurrence or mortality? How does That's what people want to know, that's right? What they Not about their know. CRP in their blood, but, right? Right. Well, it helps. That helps a little bit. But it's really the, the burning question. <laughs> no is, offense. Yeah. You know, with drug trials, you need to show its effect on progression-free survival. You know, how much it lowers risk of recurrence or mortality to get that drug approved. Sure. Um, and so we're not there yet with exercise or weight loss because these trials haven't been funded because they're very expensive, but not probably nearly as expensive as some of the drug trials. Most of the drug trials, though, are usually funded by pharmaceutical companies who have an interest in that that medication, and so they're willing to fund those expensive trials. But because exercise and weight loss doesn't really involve a medication per se, um, they're not as interested in funding such trials. So it's really left to the government or um, organizations, foundations. foundations. But the budget usually doesn't fit in the model of, of foundations. It's foundation are great to fund ancillary studies and studies that look at surrogate biomarkers or intermediate markers, which is a lot of what my research has has looked at. Um, so, you know, in the absence of the, the data, the results on recurrence and mortality endpoints, we look at how weight loss and, and exercise influence these intermediate markers or these surrogate markers of recurrence. So, for example, we've known for many years that estrogen is strongly related to breast cancer. So if you can lower estrogen levels, you're likely lowering your risk of developing or dying of breast cancer, so much so that we now have three FDA-approved um, aromatase inhibitor medications for women with postmenopausal women with breast cancer. And so this has become standard of care where for women with breast cancer, when they finish chemotherapy and radiation, if they have an estrogen receptor positive tumor, they're put on, they're recommended to take one of these aromatase inhibitors or tamoxifen if they're premenopausal. And so another question is, what else can we do to lower estrogen levels? So some research I've done um, in healthy postmenopausal women looked at how exercise could lower estrogen levels. And these were women not taking a hormone replacement therapy. Um, And obviously, they weren't taking an aromatase inhibitor or tamoxifen. And we showed that a a year-long exercise program in women who were inactive before enrolled in the trial decreased estrogen levels um, from 8 to 15 percent, depending on if they lost body weight or not. So if they had no um, significant change in body weight, they had about an 8 percent decrease in estradiol um, and estrone levels, Hmm. um, which are common estrogens in women with breast cancer. And if they had a 2 percent or more body weight or body fat loss, they had even greater decreases in estrogen. So not as much of a decrease as an aromatase inhibitor might have on estrogens, but a decrease nonetheless, and something that gives women and clinicians more information 
information about the role of lifestyle factors in influencing development of a cancer or recurrence of that cancer. And do you think that 8 to 15% reduction could be clinically meaningful in terms of reducing risk? I, I do think so. So if we look at um, switching to metformin, which has been um, prescribed for insulin and diabetes and now is looked at in bre- is being looked at right now in breast cancer. This we, is a diabetes drug, is it? It's a diabetes drug that is being examined right now in a large um, phase two trial of women with breast cancer. Uh, Pam Goodwin out of Toronto is actually doing this study with results coming out in about a year or two. And if they find that metformin is um, favorable on lowering recurrence and mortality in breast cancer, it might become a standard of care for women with breast cancer and non-diabetic women with breast cancer. So these are people who've had breast cancer and it's been treated with whatever surgery or radiation or chemo that they need. Correct. And then they go on this diabetes drug? Uh, yep. Uh, because metformin, um, it was developed for diabetes, but the way it works is by lowering insulin levels. And we know insulin is a strong risk factor for developing or dying of breast cancer. So women at diagnosis, if they have high insulin levels, say in the top quartile versus the bottom quartile. You sound they, like an epidemiologist. Uh, exactly. <laughs> they have a two to three fold higher risk of recurrence or mortality compared to women with lower insulin levels. So how to um, target insulin or lower insulin levels has been an area of of interest um, by epidemiologists and clinicians. But interestingly, um, metformin might lower insulin levels by about 20 to 25 percent. And that may influence recurrence and mortality. We know from our studies of exercise and weight loss that a lowering of insulin by about 20 to 25 percent occurs with about a 5 percent weight loss or about doing two to three hours per week of a exercise. So here, once again, you see um, that some you know, some medications lower these surrogate markers, these biomarkers, to a similar extent of some of these lifestyle behaviors. Um, so it's just giving um, survivors, patients, and clinicians more information because some um, might not want to take metformin after um, finishing chemotherapy or radiation, um, or some unfortunately may not even want to take an aromatase inhibitor, even though the evidence is quite strong as to its benefit. Um, So giving them another option with weight loss or exercise that not only influences recurrence and mortality, but also benefits cardiovascular disease risk and other outcomes in quality of life is is important to consider. Yeah, well, and it's also cheaper than taking medicine. You don't have to remember to take your medicine. And you feel better when you're exercising. I think most of us really recognize that. Yeah, so the problem is that over 60% of the population, these are healthy individuals as well as those with cancer, um, don't exercise and are overweight or obese. And so how do we really affect change on a population level? We live in an environment that doesn't make it very easy to eat healthy and exercise. Um, So I think we have to look at this on a large-scale level of how, how to make the environment a little bit easier to practice these behaviors and then create more access, have insurance reimburse these programs more, um, just so that it is so easy to actually do. You go to Amsterdam and everyone is biking. It's it's the way people travel there. I just got back from Vancouver, Canada, and they have bike paths all over the city. It is so easy to get on a bicycle and bike all over the city. That's not as, as possible here um, in some of our cities or suburbs in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, In terms of this metformin issue um, that you brought up, 
if you're lowering insulin, is there any risk that you're going to induce diabetes in patients who have normal insulin levels, or does it not work like that? It doesn't work like that, but that's a good question. That's why you do a randomized trial. Gotcha. You know, in um, you know, interestingly, the the also the impetus for that this interest of metformin is um, ten years ago a landmark study published in the New England Journal of Medicine was the diabetes prevention program. It was a three arm trial of men and women who were healthy. They were impaired glucose tolerance, so they had high glucose levels, but they were not diabetic. And they were randomized to either taking metformin or a lifestyle in intervention of exercise and weight loss or a control group. And the study was stopped early after three years because the lifestyle intervention was so much more effective in preventing diabetes than the medication oh, metformin. And so um, it, it lowered uh, risk of diabetes by about 57% versus the, the drug, lowering it by about 30%. So in the last 10 years, has been this has been a huge area of interest. But yes, randomized trials are important to look at toxicity side effects, adverse events for both groups, the, the lifestyle intervention group as well as the medication group um, on a number of endpoints. You know, I'll, I'll just share a little personal experience. I had the opportunity when I was living in Maryland to participate in, in what became a very seminal study of weight loss, which randomized uh, between um, just kind of do it on your own and they're going to give you some information and, uh, and two different kind of... Um, monitor things. One was kind of a Weight Watchers-like program, and one was something that was mostly online where you had a coach online. And I was super excited about it. My internist had gotten me all revved up about it, and then I was randomized to the control group. Mm -hmm. And I was so angry that I said, you know, I'm going to show, I'm going to mess up their study. I'm going to like be the best weight loss guy. And, and I was hugely successful in losing really way more than they were targeting like 5% or something like that or 10%. And I, but I that shows the benefit of participating in randomized trials, that even if you're randomized to the control group, I you get benefit. I still got benefit. But here's exactly. the sad story is because I didn't get the, the maintenance part, I gained it back. So, so you know. usually what we do, so in our interventions, we'll do a waitlist group. So if the intervention's six months long or a year long, if and, and they get the control group, they get the full-on intervention when the study ends. So all they have to do is be willing to wait. But that's still Fantastic. I wish I had gotten that yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. But, but I think there's a lot to be said of participating in trials because there's a benefit for all those, even if randomized. Well, yeah, I mean, I was so excited just to be part of this thing. And I, I think it was eventually published in the New England Journal uh, of Medicine. So, I mean, I, I'm proud that I was part of that. But it was also, I felt very engaged. Because, and I was coming in every six months for measurements and things like that. So I definitely encourage people to consider being in these kind of clinical trials. It was really, I found it really kind of fun. So one, uh, we recently just received um, a new grant from the Connecticut Breast Health Initiative um, to actually disseminate our lean study, um, this weight loss study in breast cancer survivors. And so what we're actually going to do is we developed this book um, that has these weekly chapters that guide the counseling sessions. Um, and this was a very effective trial, but we want to um, have this book be available to, you know, breast cancer survivors to be available in cancer hospitals and clinics and 
whatnot, but we want to test the um, effectiveness of the book alone without the counseling mm. sessions. And so we're actually doing that now where we're going to enroll 100 women with breast cancer um, and give them the book and see how much weight they can lose on their own with the book without the counseling sessions versus a delayed group who doesn't get the book till the end of the study. And we hypothesize we'll see less weight loss without the counseling sessions, but it might be um, enough weight loss or prevention of weight gain because that's what actually does is common after diagnosis. There is some weight gain. And as we age, we gain weight. So if we can prevent that weight gain or even um, lead to a little bit of weight loss, that's um, something that we can give patients um, at their diagnosis or when they've completed treatment or something. Um, So hopefully this book will add to the literature and be evidence-based and something that the control groups then get from now on. Yeah, that sounds great. I My guess is that without, I think the human contact and the accountability thing and certainly group things, I think it's one of the reasons that Weight Watchers is often so successful for people. I think being part of a team, all those things I I see as positives, but obviously not everybody likes to run that way and not everybody has access. So yeah, I agree. And and that's the interesting thing about studying behaviors um, from a, you know, is it the group dynamic? Is it the one-on-one dynamic? Is it, um, how do you create? an intervention that works for every um, patient that you're enrolling when you have to have the efficacy and the tight control over the the intervention that you're delivering. So uh, to me, it's a fascinating field doing cancer epidemiology and behavioral research um, because at the end of the day, it is about the the quality of our life um, and these behaviors really can affect that. And hopefully we can also show that they affect recurrence and mortality as well. Yeah. And maybe it's not one size fits all based on people's, you know, work patterns and personality patterns and uh, so on. I guess you can't really control for that. And yeah, in one trial, you have to kind of just stick to one intervention. Right. Yet that's why in epidemiology, you'll enroll thousands of people so that you can then either statistically control for that or stratify by different, um, you know, like dose response effects to an intervention or by age or gender or race, ethnicity, and look at how effective the intervention was in certain subgroups. Mm, interesting. Now, uh, before the break, you had mentioned that many of your colleagues have taken to some of these standing desks and uh, and uh, treadmill desks. So we don't have a lot of time. But um, do you think these are good ideas? I do. So at rest, when you're sitting right now, we're probably burning about a calorie a minute. And if you stand up, you're burning about two calories a minute. So if you stand for an hour, you'll burn about 120 calories versus 60 calories if you sit for an hour. So that's 60 calories, which doesn't seem like much. But if you do that for maybe two or three three hours of your workday every day of the week, you know, and there's about 3,500 calories in a pound of body fat. You can see how doing this, you know, creating this small behavior change over time might prevent weight gain or might even lead to some slight weight loss. Dr. Melinda Irwin is Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Chronic Diseases at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program. And we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. 
I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.